Both of my parents are pastors and staunch Republicans. I didn't finish high school, and unfortunately, I don't have a formal education. But I do have an open mind, and I have a voice. So I'm asking you to have an open mind and to use your voice. Because on November 8th, you'll be just as powerful as any NRA lobbyist. You'll have as much say as any billionaire. Or you can just cancel out your weird cousin's vote if you like. Because remember, it's not where you come from, it's what you grow into. So here's how I'm going to use my voice. I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton. That's right, I love Hillary too. I have a couple of saved messages on my phone from HRC. And I bet you guys have to know that I have a closet full of uh, Hillary-themed dresses, right? That's right, because I have been on the road with her since Iowa. And now, guess what? If you're listening, if you're watching, you can join her on the road too. If you go to hillaryclinton.com and donate before midnight, you can win a chance to join Hillary on the road and see for yourself why I know she will be the next president of the United States. And maybe I'll let you borrow one of my outfits too. God bless. Hello, everyone. This is Cody Brody, best friend of Moby. That's right. And I'm out here getting real fired up. I wanted to come on Humor and the Abject today to let you know about a new way to get lifted. It goes by many names. The Devil's Lettuce. That Keith. The Dub. Giggle Sticks. Left-handed Jazz Cigarettes. Combustible Herbage. Skull Chronic. Tarantula Apocalypse. Denver Nuggets. Thick Mayonnaise. One Tug Chauncey. Occupier of Bombs. Green Nips. Underwater Cash Stash. David Foster Wallace's Lawnmower. Penis Envy. Bernie Would Have Skunk. Wikiwedia. Airplane Johnson. The Babysitter. Bazooka Black Cobb Salad. Caviar Winnie the Pooh. Scarlett Johansson. Domestic Terrorism. The Tubby Grasshopper. Weekend Socialist. Dad's Fedora. Canadian Democracy. Hosswater Cuckmaster. Jennifer. Lord Slobbington. I'm talking about marijuana. It's not a drug. It's a frame of fucking reference. It's your calling. Cop a fat bag of Riddler's myth and tell me that you don't understand string theory. I don't give a fuck. We'll be with you all episode this week. Bringing you the good news about the shook of revelation. That seven-headed beast ain't got shit on me. I'm out here. Bring the caramel. Bring the saucepan. Bring an open mind. Or get back to the grind. No one deserves to be sick. No one deserves that suffering. And as Christians, we're called to love everyone. And so you know what? I love Hillary Clinton. I love her as my sister in Christ. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to be Christ-like. To love with a love that Jesus had. To love with Jesus' heart. And he had a heart for the sick. And so when you see someone, regardless of if you don't agree with them, I don't agree with her politics, I don't agree with her ideas, 
but we can still love those people, wish them well, and pray for them. Greetings, you death penalty opposing except when it aligns with your micro-specific politics greedlers. This is Staff Only. And you've successfully tuned into episode 19 of the Humor and the Abject podcast with your faithful and illegally handsome host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Do you know what week it is? It's Thomas J. Gamble's birthday week. He's the golden boy. The Midwest mini-celebrity. The one and only Tweed J. He is the illustrator you've come to know and love through his infinite hash comics on the Humor and the Abject website. Send him some love. Follow him on Twitter. His handle is at Thomas J. Gamble. Hey, here's a quick fucking question. Does anybody know someone who works at Bevy? They are the motherfuckers who created the customizable fizzy water machine that's in the kitchen at Kickstarter. We've talked about their product at least a dozen times on the podcast. That is called native ass advertising. I feel like we should be getting some type of kickback from them. I'm talking about dollars. Tweet at them and tell them to sponsor this shit. Anyways, we've got a really exciting show for you this week. It's an old pal of Sean's who is visiting from Portland, Oregon. His name is Daniel J. Glendening. He's weird as shit and likes things that are occult. He probably thinks that he's been to outer space. I love him. Sean loves him. You're going to love him. He's got a brand new science fiction novel out with small editions that was released this weekend at the New York Art Book Fair. He and Sean are also part of a paranormal research team along with artist Michael Welsh called GWC, Investigators. Go check out their shit. I feel like I'm rumbling. Maybe it's because I just took a fat ass hit off of that Canadian democracy that Cody Brody brought by the studio today. This week's episode is brought to you by Weed and by Katy Perry Instrumentals. Let's do the show. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 19 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. And this, dear listeners, is the sound of a box of Altoid Smalls. We're recording today in a binaural audio. This is going to be a full ASMR experience for you. The entire episode will have these uh, small Altoids going on in the background. Um, I've also got a... <laughs> also got a mug here that I'll be tapping them on periodically to keep time. Um, but no, please let's let's get serious here. We're we're here today with uh, a good friend of mine, an artist, a writer, sometimes curator, I suppose, bookmaker, all types of different things. And he's visiting New York this weekend for the New York Art Book Fair. He has a brand new science fiction novel, The Gardener, The Visionary, and The Traveler, out with small editions. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, so, Daniel Glendening, welcome to Humor the Abject. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, even though I'm not funny. You're pretty funny. <laughs> you're pretty funny. I understand you're also going to be doing some, you're going to do some light reading for us today as well. Yeah. So we'll take a couple breaks later, and you'll be able to hear a few bits from the, uh, from The Gardener, The Visionary, and The Traveler. So... Why don't you tell us what this is all about? Why are there only three characters? Well, that's uh, 
complicated question. <laughs> it's actually more than three characters. Okay. Um, what is the book about? The book is about the book sort of follows three kind of three storylines, uh, primarily focused on a central protagonist named John Shepard, um, who has a terrible sort of office job set in a future world. Um, and would you say it's dystopian? Maybe minorly dystopian. Um, and John sort of abandons his job to go camping and becomes sort of in uh, becomes sort of involved in a an information cult. Um, I like anyway. that. So there's that storyline, and there's a storyline also about. Settlers on Mars um, have established the first human settlement on Mars uh, that's sort of loosely based on the Mars One project. I thought you were going to say the Mars Volta. No. Not based not at the, all. No, not based at all on the Mars Volta. Right. You know, you could cite them as a – no, you can't even cite them as an influence <laughs> really. Um, on the Mars One project and it's sort of like a reality – Broadcast reality TV broadcast uh, oh. that has been abandoned because people stopped watching it. <laughs> um, that and John is obsessed with this, also. And what's the? And there's a third story. And the third storyline is sort of uh, like sort of history of Mar, Mar Martian exploration by NASA, and um, that sort of leads into the like beginning stages of the settlement and the um, process of selecting applicants. And a lot of that was. Um, appropriated from wikipedia <laughs> what are there different narrative are there different narrators or is um, there an om, omniscient it's all fairly omniscient uh would, would narrators. you say the is the narrator unreliable i think the narr- well no i don't think so that's good I mean, maybe. Been... I think all narrators are kind of unreliable. Is this but... the same book that... Have you been working on this for a while? Because I remember in... I don't know why I just had a flashback to this, but I remember in 2012, it was like write a novel in a month day or something. That doesn't make any sense. But it was some sort of thing, <laughs> it was some sort of thing like that. And I have this... I just had this flashback to I was walking through downtown Banff, Alberta. And I, like you, maybe we were like messaging or something like that. And you were like, I'm working on the science fiction novel. Is this the same one? This is the same one. That's that's a good time. I feel like five years is okay for it to take to write a book. Though. Yeah. Did you like get to a point and scrap it and start over, or has this been a pretty linear? Process? Um, it's been fairly linear, actually. I mean, I started it during that like you know novel writing month thing uh, because I had nothing else to do, and I don't even know if I had a job, um, and was <laughs> had didn't have a studio, uh, so this was like a way to make work that I could do at home and at my internship. Yeah. Um, and started it then, but it took me well longer than a month to write <laughs> the first draft. 60 but. months. Is that five years? It's 12 times five. Yeah. Six. Well, first zero. draft, the first draft probably took a year and a half. Wow. Um, and, uh, how did you, uh, how did you get hooked up with Karina and small editions mm-hmm. and where did that relationship form? I met Karina at Wasaic Project up in Wasaic, New York. Uh, I was doing a, we were both there doing a residency. This was back in 2011. Um, and I was like right out of grad school and didn't know what I was doing. Um, spent a month up at Wasaic and Karina was there also, I think, 
think she had just finished grad school also at Cranbrook and was sort of in the process of moving to New York at that time. And Wasaic mm. was like kind of a stopover on that path. Were you, uh, were you working in a goat barn? Working in a goat barn. Over there? Um, yeah, I got to go up to yeah. Wasaic and uh, do a talk a couple summers ago. And Did you see the alligator? I didn't see an alligator. What? They used to have... <laughs> there's no alligator. Yeah, there's alli- there used to be an alligator. There are the, alligators um, in New York. Did you... Was the greenhouse still there? I don't... Maybe? There's like a, a green. Pigs. There's like a greenhouse um, sort of behind the barn by the like horse pasture or whatever. Huh. Oh, maybe there was. And um, when I was there, the I don't know... It was like some people that were, you know, like friends of Wasaic Project um, who were like farmers mm-hmm. had greenhouse there that they were growing crops and also raising trout in the greenhouse in like an aquaponic system and an alligator and they had a baby alligator baby baby. alligator like in a in a wading pool and i thought you meant like a giant one there were these pigs when i was there that were it was the first time i ever saw a pig pee and it shoots straight out of like it looks like it's coming out of their butt oh yeah backwards it's very tight yeah but we got to give a talk in a uh like in the auction barn yeah Yeah. like down on the floor where you would do that that was actually pretty cool did you do, use an auctioneer's voice when you were doing that? No, I don't really know how to do that. I don't think that I can speak that quickly. Um, but I do find auctioneers grading and yeah. pretty obnoxious, particularly art auctioneers. They're always uh, yeah. like really, they find themselves very clever. Yeah, they think they're clowns. It, it bothers me. <laughs> um, okay, so you came out here for the new book. And uh, I mean, this is going to come out after the book fair, so it doesn't matter. And this doesn't help anybody. But you're going up to the NYABF to do some signings this evening. Is that true? Yeah. So I guess when is this going to air? Probably when, I'll put it up Sunday night. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll just speak in past. And say, yeah, the book signing was great. Yeah, a lot of people showed up. A lot of people Incredible. sold, a, yeah, like sold a like tons of them. That's Huge great. line around the just around the building. I heard Thurston Moore to picked up me. a copy. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, was, yeah. met all my idols. Um, here's a question for you. Uh, this isn't really a question. It's more of a statement. I just don't know if you agree with it or not, but I feel like you're obsessed with L. Ron Hubbard. I was for a while. I'm uh, not <laughs> Could you speak on that? Um, I was doing a lot of research. Now, that, now and, you've written a science fiction novel? Are you? I mean... I was doing a lot of research into L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology in general for a period of time um, because I, for a long time I've been sort of in like researching and thinking about through my work um, ideas of belief and like this sort of question of like why we believe mm-hmm. in anything at all and uh, how that sort of relates both to just like uh, – personal ideologies and um, religion and all of that. Um, and I just f- find L. Ron Hubbard to be a fast, just a fascinating figure in that, I mean, he was a con man and like a charlatan and, but managed to invent, I mean, he managed to invent a reli- like a religion that um, like most people, popular new religion mm-hmm. in the world and it's ridiculous and like terrifying did i ever tell you that i went to uh i attended an orientation at the church of Scientology oh, yeah? in phoenix arizona how was it it was pretty creepy yeah um i woke up one morning and i was living in tempe at the time and there was like a door hanger thing like uh-huh. on the door it said something like you know are you do you always feel sick do you feel lost it's like yes always you know, <laughs> you know, <I> like 20 <laughs> three years old or something. So I was probably hungover, but, 
Um, so I convinced my friend Serena to go to uh, downtown Phoenix with me. I scheduled an appointment to go because I really wanted to see what this thing was about. I mean, I had no intention of joining, obviously, but I was like, you can yeah. just go to yeah. the Church of Scientology. So we went and we watched their orientation film. We got put in this little theater. It was just the two of us. Had a strong feeling that we were being observed yeah. while we were watching oh, yeah. um, this sort of like induction video. And it had, you know, Kirstie Alley was in it and John yeah. Travolta and... The video was hosted and narrated by, um, I think it was the guy who played Otter on Animal House. Okay. Um, I, I feel like his name is Tim Matheson, but I could be wrong. But anyways, we, uh, we watched the thing, then it got done, and then they asked if we wanted to have like our e-meter test done. Mm-hmm. And I was really excited to do that, but Serena was totally freaked out, and she was like, we need to, like, we need to leave. This is very, I don't like this. So they gave us like one to go. Like a, a paper e-metered? test. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, They didn't yeah. give us like an e-meter. But yeah. so into this bar called Casey Moore's and we sat down afterwards and we were reading the test out loud to each other. And it was just like the most violently banal mm-hmm. questions that would make any person like think that it was, it was just like, do you sometimes eat slowly? Yes. Like, have you, do you feel tired at the end of the day? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that. I was just like, but... I don't know, pretty wacky, but we're not here to talk about Scientology. We're here to talk about your fucking art, man. All right. Um, but I do want to ask, you work in sculpture, video, you just wrote a novel, you do printmaking, performance, you've designed some games. Um, has that always been the case? And if so, what's important for you in navigating between all the different media? Is it like a boredom or the don't, just don't fucking say that you let the idea drive the form because it's not a real um, answer and that's what everybody says, yeah. but... I think it's boredom. Yeah. Yeah. I get, uh, I get bored. Yeah, it's boredom. I get bored with what things that I'm working on really, like really quickly. And, uh, and I think like jumping between media is a way to sort of deflect that boredom. And also like I'm most sort of engaged with things when I'm like learning new skills or new, mostly new skills. So like, making games, like learning how to code, and I'm terrible at it, but like learned it enough to do this thing, and it's like a puzzle to put together. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, what's your favorite? What's my favorite mm-hmm. medium mm-hmm. to work in? Yeah. Uh, the dish. I think, I think, scul- I mean, I think sculpture. Is it because you just like glue something to something else? Yeah, you just glue something, and then it's an art. Yeah. That's what um, I'm always saying. I'm always talking about sculptors are always just gluing something that they bought to something else, and then yeah, it, somebody else will glue the same object to something else, and, and then, then they get a, really upset. Yeah, that's appropriation. Because they stole their idea. Yeah. Um, I think sculpture... I, I, I've been working in sculpture, like, the longest. That's been the sort of main thorough, like, through line. And I kind of think about, like... Um, and I, in, a, in a large way, I think about all the things that... I, even though I work in a range of media... I kind of think about all of them as sculptural forms. Of course you do. Um, like, <laughs> like making the games, it's like about making, like, a, you know, sculpture and installation and like the games is about making a space as navigated. Yeah. And it just happens to be on a screen. Um, when I started the novel project, I was thinking a lot about, um, about the novel as sculpture. Uh, and how that can sort of operate different ways. So, like, um, how it can operate as, like, how the book can be a, is, like, a sculpture and a vessel for for 
ideas um, and like how that sort of sculptural form can, I don't know, be sort of flexible. Do you feel um, like will any adjacent work come out of the novel? Like, are you going to make uh, objects or anything else that's related to it? Or do you feel like it's, even if it I has think it's self-contained. Like neat and tidy. Yeah. All wrapped up nicely. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. Um, also, I wanted to talk a little bit about California because I know sure. that, I mean, you're from California, but also it seems like it plays a pretty central role in a lot of the work that you do. And if I'm, yeah. if I'm misquoting you, I apologize, but I feel like we talked, I mean, this is years ago, this is probably like six years ago or something, but I thought it was really interesting because you were explaining that California as a site, as like this state is kind of the, uh, where the two diametrically opposed, like eschatological theories of like the end of times, like where these two things can go, you know. The hippies in Ojai or the hippies in Joshua Tree and things like that have California as this kind of transcendent spiritual realm where you can like go to a higher plane and that's like the end of the world isn't a terrible thing because you've achieved or unlocked something else. Whereas it's also a site of massive uh, natural disasters and mm -hmm. like eventually the San Andreas Fault will crack and mm -hmm. Los Angeles will fall into the ocean and all these things like that. So it's kind of this double-edged sword mm -hmm. where it's like beautiful and wonderful but also like sort of scary and is like... Uh, yeah. possibly where, you know, I mean, a lot of people will die when LA falls into the ocean. Yeah. Um, it's going to be wild. It's going to be pretty wild. I mean, it's already on fire, so it's pretty terrible. <laughs> what is it? Um, <laughs> this is off topic, but who wrote Let Malibu Burn? Do you know what I'm talking uh, about? I don't know. That essay? Maybe it was like Mike Davis. I don't know the person's name, but it was basically just like a, it was like an op-ed that was in a, a newspaper in Los Angeles. Yeah. that was big. It was extremely controversial, but he was just basically like, like the fire department should stop just like, stop, stop putting out the fires yeah stop putting yeah. out the fires in malibu like rich people are building their homes in fire corridors and right. then like using all the resources to fight that them. the city yeah. has to fight them and like people's yeah. houses are burning down in east los angeles and like all of the efforts are being put right. over here so just let, let like let it burn out once yeah but anyways i Cali, think i mean that's like Cali girl. jumping back to my thesis yeah grad school thesis and and i think like a lot of that thought was around, yeah, like around sort of destabilization of a site and the and that sort of um, like the West Coast of the U.S. as a sort of cultural pivot point, um, and that's and I think it is this sort of like conflation of of like you know that sort of like this is like you know the the West in U.S. culture is that sort of like go for, you know, mm -hmm. it's like the manifest destiny thing, right? Like mm -hmm. that's where you go forth and find your, find your destiny. Um, make your and paper. what? Make your paper. Make your paper. And, um, but it also is like a, but it also is a like geologically unstable site. And so like that sort of idea of like change and fluctuation is kind of embedded in the culture. I think it's also like, I think especially now there's multiple sort of visions of that kind of utopia transcendent space. There's, there is like the, like you said, like the Joshua tree, Ojai hippie sort of scene, the, the counterculture scene, the Silicon Valley, but then there's the, like, then there's the, <laughs> yes, then there's the <laughs> Silicon Valley libertarian tech, techno utopians. Yeah. That is something else entirely. But I think that that space like culturally has been for a long time as like you know, the history of the United States has been a sort of 
place of potentiality and um, change. And I think that that's, I mean, it, a number of years ago, I was doing a lot of research into that around like, like that being embedded in the actual geology of it, because it's a space that's always in flux and on the edge of total collapse. Cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break, Daniel. Um, and then when we come back, uh, I'm going to have you read a little bit from your novel. Cool. So everybody stay tuned. Uh, we have to hear from our sponsors now. I know how much you love uh, hearing from the fucking sponsors. We'll be right back. Are you a sculptor? Are you the type of sculptor who likes to buy something from the store that is mass produced and then glue it to another thing that you bought from the store? Great. That makes sense. That's literally what sculpture is. But oftentimes, when you glue something you bought from the store to something else that you bought from the store, it falls off because the glue isn't strong enough. This is Pinwheel Horse Pepper and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new product for artists and crafts people. It's called Glue Tube. That's right. Just like YouTube, except that it is a tube of glue and doesn't involve video. Although, sometimes sculpture can involve video. I wouldn't recommend it though. Anyways, GluTube is one of the strongest, wildest, and most elegant adhesives on planet Earth. It's made from a combination of Velcro, horse stomach, duck butter, and carbon fiber rubber. It'll hold anything together. Whether you're trying to glue a piece of a Pendleton wool blanket to a Vitomix or a bunch of cool-looking copper gears to your monocle goggle, GluTube will get the job done. Head over to the website, GluTube.com and enter humor at the checkout for 10% off. All sculpture is steampunk. NASA's rover, Curiosity, wasn't designed with the equipment necessary to search for life. It could not, for instance, sift through a soil sample dug out of a lake bed and search for microscopic fossils of ancient long-dead bacteria. It could, however, collect up to 74 soil samples, house each in a separate quartz vial and subject that sample to a battery of tests, shoot it with lasers, heat it to the point of combustion or liquefaction, chill it, run it through a centrifuge, or test for magnetism and chemical makeup. It could, for instance, detect whether the soil contained the organic compounds necessary for life, or those that signified the possibility that the soil sample was composed, perhaps, of matter formed through the decomposition of living things. Shortly after landing on the cold, dusty surface of the planet, Curiosity found itself on the ancient shoreline of Yellowknife Bay. The rocks present in the basin of Yellowknife Bay are nearly three and a half billion years old, as old as the oldest terrestrial fossils. The ancient lake hypothesized to have, been, to have filled the basin of which Yellowknife Bay was a part of was, in all likelihood, a freshwater body, fed by several streams that flowed down the edges of Gale Crater. The lake bed is formed of primarily a fine-grained, silty mudstone rich in clay. Clay often forms in low-energy deposition environments, such as large bodies of water, and terrestrial clay deposits are mostly composed of phyllosilicate material materials containing various amounts of water trapped within the mineral structure. Such deposits are typically formed over long periods of time by the gradual chemical weathering of silicate-bearing rocks. Through low concentrations of carbonic acid and other highly diluted solvents, the rock is eventually broken down, 
Clay fields can form in place as residual soil deposits, but are most often accumulated through sedimentary deposition. There at Yellowknife Bay, the rover found evidence of the planet's waterlogged history. Where was once the water's edge, the rover found highly stratified layers of rock evidencing mineral veins and concretions, small spherical concentrations of minerals suggesting the precipitation of minerals out of water. As the rover continued its tests, it found evidence of subsurface liquid, primarily in the form of water bound into, into the crystalline structure of hydrated minerals. Six miles to the east of Yellowknife Bay, still in the base of the Gale Crater, stands Aeolus Mons, otherwise known as, known as Mount Sharp, a three-and-a-half-mile-tall mountain peak with no marked evidence of folding, faulting, or plate tectonics. It is, relative to terrestrial geology, an anomaly. Nothing like it exists on Earth. Rising 18,000 feet above the crater floor, the peak is higher than the southern crater rim, and how the peak may have formed remains unclear. It is likely that... After the creation of the impact crater, the crater was filled over millennia by sediments that were later eroded by the planet's relentless winds, leaving the peak in place. Cannot be ruled out, though, that the peak was deliberately built there in the center of the circular Gale Crater. After spending time trolling the shoreline of the lake, Curiosity set out toward the mountain. Several months later, the rover was climbing through the layers of geologic deposits, red cluster crystalline hematite toward the base through layers of clay and sulfates. It's around this time that things began to derail in quite unexpected ways. Curiosity had been drilling for samples in an upper clay layer for several days and testing them for organic compounds. Suddenly, while conducting a slow drill sample, the clay-rich rock cracked and crumbled under the drill arm of the rover. The rover had broken through into a small subterranean chamber. As the rock fell away, a tangled knot of writhing worms tumbled out of the chamber into the open air. The worms flowed out of the hole relentlessly, thousands of knotted nematodes, while the NASA operators, watching the rover's actions via the vehicle's satellite camera, stared, frozen and agape. Under the radiation of the sun, untempered by the thin atmosphere of the planet, the worms quickly burned and desiccated, and were borne aloft and away, ashes on the Martian wind. The writhing flood slowed little by little, and the NASA ground crew, shocked, didn't know what to do. They stared blankly. No one said a word. This was nothing they had ever imagined. this site of change and also its geology and its like character and it is this physical being and a lot of the aesthetics of it and mm -hmm. a lot of the actual physical earth from it seems like it makes appearances in the work that you're making um, even though you don't live in California you live in Oregon I should mm -hmm. have said that earlier mm -hmm. where's that coming from buddy well I grew up there Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's a big part of it. Um, grew up in Northern California. I don't and it's put sort of like deciduous trees in my heart, man. And it's been sort of, but culturally, it's like embedded in my way of thinking, right? Like, yeah. um, and, and it, it's like hippies? my parents, well, I don't think they would call themselves that, but yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, Did they live in an intentional community? They have never, I don't think they've ever lived in an intentional community. They, <laughs> right, you know, they live like out in the middle of the forest. Okay. Um, um, 
they I don't think they would self-identify as hippies, but uh, the whole I mean the culture of where I the culture of where I grew up is like you know tons of and has been forever like tons of weed growers and like that's ingrained into the economy and that's mm -hmm. ingrained into the culture and um and my dad the first concert that i remember going to was a grateful dead show and i don't remember the like band performing at all i just remember finding like somebody's cache of like amethysts and mm -hmm. shit underneath a at a pole at the bottom of a pole in the grass and did you see him before jer bear died yeah that was probably i was oh, probably man. like four that's cool. Yeah, he died in '95. I never saw yeah. the dead with Jerry. Yeah, I did, but I don't I've remember seen the it. Dead, but he died. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I mean, it's just like part of what I grew this up. It's like a with formative and... thing that kind of resonates with you, and yeah. it's not like yeah. And it seems like it's a. I mean, it's kind of a cool place to be from. Yeah. As opposed to you know, some sure. people might be from like like I don't want to make work about Iowa. Right. Or I don't want to make work about. Um... And I think it's like it's like the place, but also the the culture and the kind of ideology of that I grew. up grew up with and it's not just like it's the place but also um also just my parents and their ideologies that is sort of like um you know my dad never you know he he's sort of like ingrained this idea that like you don't buy something that you can make or do yourself mm -hmm. um it, which was really frustrating when I was a kid and like wanted some Oreos and he was like, no, we'll make cookies. Like, no daddy, we can't make Oreos. No, you can't. It's <laughs> not a possibility. But, but that sort or of like ethos, like, yeah, yeah, sure. We'll just make one. That'd be fine. <laughs> um, but that sort of like ethos and mindset that is like, was a sort of like political stance without being overtly political. Yeah. Um, Are they arty people? My uh Yeah. My dad, my dad is like a carpenter by trade. He hasn't been able to make a living doing that, but that's like his form. That's what he he's and he makes beautiful work and he's done like jewelry making and things like that. Um, my mom's an architect. Um, both of them are like, you know, when I was growing up, there's a lot of just like drawing and stuff like that. And um, so yes, to a certain certain degree. Cool. And I imagine that stayed with you. I mean, I think yeah. that um, embedded in a lot of the work that you're making are these kind of nods to that. But also mm -hmm. it seems like it seems like a lot of the work that you make is related to concepts of communication and whether mm -hmm. that means um, communicating with the natural environment or communicating beyond Earth and mm -hmm. kind of using your body as this uh, fulcrum or like a, mm -hmm. a point of reference between something that's like within the earth or beyond or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and one piece in particular that I actually, I just saw because I was looking at your website the other day, but uh, what was the, you did a piece called Beacon mm -hmm. and I didn't know that you did that. And then I was looking at it, but can you talk about that piece for a minute? Where was yeah. that? That was out uh, on the coast in Southern Washington uh, at this event called Spaceness that is put on by Allison Jean Cole and, Julia Barbie and Matt Suppley that we met at Hydra's at Test Sites. Like, I'm sorry, Allison, Allison? Yeah. Oh, Allison, if you're <laughs> sorry. listening, sorry, uh, Allison. we're very sorry for everything. Everything, yeah. Um, um. <laughs> should have tag her on Instagram if you post anything about this. Um, but oh, they Mike, started Mike this... isn't here, but Mike yeah. says sorry, too. Mike said sorry. He always is, yeah, always. Um, but wait, what's spaceness? Is it so like they, a few years ago, were they're coming up on the fourth iteration of this event. Um, 
It takes place every spring, um, usually like end of February, early March. Uh, it's like a weekend out at this at the Southwester, oh, yeah. uh, which is like little there. like trailer, rent some trailers, and there's like a lodge out on the coast in Washington. Um, They've got a bar that I understand you they like to go to. They have a bar called Rod's, Rod's Lamplighter that is amazing. Yeah, the Lamplighter's cool. Well, Claire, yeah, like, Claire and I stayed there last summer, yeah. and uh, we camped, which yeah. no one else was. We were the only people camping. Everybody yeah. else was staying in like a vintage trailer kind of thing. And, yeah. But it was okay. It, yeah. it wasn't expensive to camp, so that was good. Um, but but it's like so festival, art festival? It's like a festival, sort of like a small festival um, that they started sort of and organized loosely around sort of themes of like uh outer space or like transcendence or however you kind of want to interpret that sort and of just Allison like Allison used to she was working on the property of yeah, she was like managing the uh AZ West Ranch, right? Yeah, she was like So she just worked it. there for a bit and then just stole the idea of basically, high desert test sites and basically they made the their own more thematically centered uh smaller high desert test sites event. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Allison. <laughs> It sounds like a great event. I'd like to But go. it's really great. It's like, uh, it's, you know, outside of Portland, it gets a very, it doesn't get like the same sort of audience as art events in Portland. It's a lot. It's like, I don't know. It's very sort of different. Um, everybody there's like really down to do anything. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of kind of like participatory projects. Are they down with the clown? Do I don't think? think so. Well, if you do it again this year, yeah, you just try to yeah, spread that. Just try to spread that message. Just get it out there. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Um, so um, Beacon is like a, a so, communication device that you Yeah, built? so Beacon was a piece that I did out there last this last year. Um, and it's basically like a structure that was powered by solar power, had a solar power ba- battery system and a radio transmitter um, that was sort of cobbled together out of like found materials. Um to send messages to space. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like out there in the woods. Are those documented in any way, or is it just sort of like you can no, go up, just, send something out, yeah. hope it reaches the heavens, and then kind of go on your merry way? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, what other works do you think... I mean, is that something that you're consciously doing as communication, or does it just kind of find its way into it? Because as I'm thinking about other projects yeah. that you've done, and specifically things around... Um, I don't think I've ever really thought about it in those terms, but I definitely know that you, I mean, now you bring it up, I think that it's there. I think that's in a lot of things is like, there's, there was like a project that I did for Lisa Radon's publication eights that was like trying to commune with inanimate objects and doing like spirit writing. Um, And you did like a, you did a tour of haunted hotels. Yeah. I did a project that was like, well, I, went to a bunch of haunted hotels uh-huh. uh, researching sort of ghosts and the sort of relationship between architecture and hauntings and thinking about the way that um, like architecture acts as a sort of a vessel for memory mm-hmm. um, and how that maybe is the sort of manifestation of the ghost phenomenon um, or the haunting phenomenon, like sort of residual echoes of trauma embedded in architecture. Hmm. Um, and so went to a number of haunted hotels. And Did you find a similarity the between the the architecture of those places, like just aesthetically? Like no. the way that the things are laid out or no? No. Hmm. no. We stayed at, uh, 
I can't remember if I messaged you when we were staying there, but when I was in Arizona a couple of years ago, we went to Globe, which is this small city, like mining town east yeah. of east of Phoenix. And we stayed there and we stayed at this place called, um, I'll butcher the name, but it was called like the Nofsker Hill uh, Inn or okay. something like that. Um, a friend had told us to stay there and it was uh, it was a former schoolhouse, like uh-huh. an elementary mm-hmm. school that had been turned into this Airbnb. And it was on top of this like um, globe looks has hills like san francisco really Uh dramatic like you know a a block is on like a you know 20 degree incline or something crazy like that i don't know anything about that if that's accurate it's steep it's very steep so this thing's on the top of this hill we got in it's very foggy and it's kind of dark and we like drove up to the thing and claire's like you know pulling it up on the map and she's like okay and there's no cars in the parking lot and all the lights are off and we're just like what the fuck is this and then we you know we get out of the car and we're about to knock on the door and it's like a glass it's a wooden door with like a glass uh, thing in it with a curtain over it. And right as we're about to knock, like just this face appears and it scares the <laughs> shit out of us. And then this little tiny woman opens the door and she goes, you must be Claire or something. Oh and I was like, Jesus Christ. And then she's like, my husband's not in, but you're welcome to come. She sounded like a vampire. Kind of. And she was just like, you, uh, she's like, you're our only guest tonight, you know? And we were like, okay, Jesus Christ. And then while we're sitting there and uh, Claire's talking to her about, you know, whatever, like breakfast is at this time, these things, yeah. this thing. And, you know, we're like, is there somewhere we can go get a beer? And she's chatting with her. I look over on the table and it's like this, you know, it's this book just conspicuously placed up. It's like most haunted places in Arizona. Yeah. Like flip it over and there's a picture of this place on the yeah. back of it. And I was just like, oh my God. And then we went in the room and it's like these huge, the rooms are enormous. They're like old classrooms. And there's like a tiny little like baby rocker bed uh-huh. thing in there oh, that's God. all like made up. Oh, God. Like a bassin- bassinet or something. Yeah. And just the creepiest weird shit. And then we like, watched the like a ghost hunters episode that went there while we were there it was very why strange. did you yeah you shouldn't have know, done just that to see what happened, but, um, <laughs> we did so so okay two there were two main places like two most prominent places i went on that research trip one was uh out on the coast it's like a lighthouse uh-huh. um like an old lighthouse keeper's residence that had been turned into a bed and breakfast um and we went and did you and emily go yeah okay emily and i went and there, there's like a that building is supposedly haunted by a spirit named Rue, I believe. Like the sauce that I make for like, mac and cheese. Like R U E. Oh, I believe is R O U X. Yeah, that's the French spelling. Rue. Rue. Um, that's the sequel. He just makes mac and cheese. Yeah, that'd probably be a step up. Um, but that was like that was a very strange experience. They were like. There was a guest book down in the lobby. They were very upfront about this haunting um, because it was supposedly it was like a benev- benevolent spirit, probably oh, to yeah. a certain extent. Um, but we were like we were the youngest people there by probably twenty years, um, and we there was like a guest book in the lobby where people could write down their ex- like sort of encounters with mm-hmm. with the spirit. Um, but in the morning, nothing really happened. Um, but in the morning. We had like the strangest breakfast that we have ever had. It was like a cinnamon course at the bed breakfast. Can I guess what it was? Can I guess? You're what never going to guess. Yes, I will. Do it. Okay. It had. Um, there definitely was orange juice and coffee. Sure. But they gave you. You probably had like a yogurt parfait thing. There was like yogurt served that had a bunch of like fruit probably. nuts involved with it. Um, definitely like a quiche. Probably. Yeah. Um, I actually don't remember this. Probably of lots of. 
But it was seven like, courses. Yeah, yeah. That's every. It was seven courses. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> and this lady serving so. it is like not a, really a server. It was like the most bizarre sort of it was haphazard. Like thirty in the morning thing at seven thirty <laughs> in the morning, and it was like supposed to be like fine dining. It was like it was ridiculous. But we were sitting there with all these other people and. Did you murder them by um, afterwards? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there was, like, one woman, like, people wanted to have this experience with the ghost. Like, most of them, I don't think, knew that it was haunted before coming there or whatever. Uh-huh. But then they, like, read about it, and they, like, wanted to have something happen. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there was one woman that um, was sort of talking about, like, well, waking up in the middle of the night and a chair fell over. And she was like, yeah, I think it was the ghost. I think it was the ghost, but it might have just been my husband knocking over the chair. But there was like this desire yeah, yeah. to have that kind of um, interaction. The other place that we went was like super weird. Mm-hmm. The other main that? place was the East uh, Hot Lake Hotel, which is out in Eastern Oregon. Hot Lake Hotel. That sounds like a band. Hot Lake Hotel out in Eastern Oregon is like kind of near. Um, oh God, what's the closest town? Deschutes. No, River. no. Um, I'm just saying things I've heard about. It's like out in the kind of desert. High desert? And yeah. Would you say Sort of like was... a test site. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they... <laughs> so this place has... Sorry, okay. Allison. So this place, um, there's a hot spring there that flows into this lake, hence the name. Um, and it was a like traditional... It was like a spiritual site for native peoples. And, of course, uh, some white folks came to Oregon and claimed it as their own and built, like, this – built, like, a resort to go and take the waters, right? Like, during that sort of, like, health – like, healthcare thing, right? (laughs) And um, so built this, like, sort of resort health spa there. Eventually that, like, kind of the – you know – that sort of tourism industry sort of fell out, became like a sanitarium. Um, what? Became a sanitarium and like a hot, like a hospital, mental okay. hospital. Um, like where Dorothy wakes up in Return to Oz? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had to think about that for a second. <laughs> they couldn't return to Oz. Yes, exactly. And then they fly out on the bed with the horse thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a moose. Oh, whatever. And, um, and then it was like, and then for, it was like a nightclub in the seventies. Um, then like half of it burned down. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it sat empty for probably 20 years. Uh, and then this artist is like a bronze casting artist in Eastern Oregon, bought it, built a foundry in the back and turned the main building into a bed and breakfast. Huh. So we get there. Talk about sight having memories. Yes. <laughs> it's very strange. Like the history of it is very weird. And and when it was abandoned, like people would go there and like there were like there's a lot of stories on the internet about like, you know, like walking through the hallways and all of a sudden all the doors like bam, bam, like slamming closed behind mm-hmm. somebody and stuff like that and like floating orbs of light and stuff. Um, so we get there. We like pull up. Um, it's this like big building. It's beautiful. Uh, you know, like snowy mountains all around and this steaming lake. And there's like hundreds of exotic birds wandering around the property, <laughs> like peacocks and pheasants and shit. 
And these local or <laughs> brought in? It's like uh, well, it's like Citizen Kane or something. <laughs> and Xanadu, right? That's, yeah. And, Xanadu. Um, and so. walk in, and there's like in the building, there's like Christian music, like Christian rock, just being piped through the whole building, hmm. really loud. Could you tell throughout the whole tell thing immediately before you even <laughs> understood the lyrics? Could you tell that it was Christian oh yeah rock? Yeah. yeah you can I, just tell you can tell when you're going through the radio yeah. stations. Where you're just like, oh, this is a, no. There's yeah. too many backup vocals and like through the whole building, just piped through the whole building. That's rude. And I don't. They like and the music is on from like seven a.m. to ten at night, <laughs> nonstop. <laughs> and we so we like check in. We go into our room. They did some weird thing when they were opening the place where they, like, had different people basically, like, furnish a room. So they, like, donated all the furniture. So every room is just, like, furnished with basically, like, thrift store furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's several rooms where they just, like, left the medical equip- equipment that was there from when it was a hospital. Okay. It was just, like, abandoned. Mm-hmm. So there's, like, an operating, like, theater Room. Oh, where people like get like with in like that Seinfeld episode where yeah. they drop a, a with like junior mint that they've turned into a children's book library. Mm. There's one room that just has like all this metal medical equipment shoved in it and a hospital bed and like a mannequin of a woman in the bed. So you're like we're like walking down the hallway. We look in there and both of us, both Emily and I, are like like screamed. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so anyway, Hot Lake Hotel. It's great. It's terrible. If so, <laughs> so anybody's listening, uh, make sure that you take a visit to the Hot Lake Hotel. Yeah, yeah. Um, They're one of our sponsors, actually. Yeah, yeah. Hot Lake Hotel. Uh, thank you for getting behind this episode. <laughs> and you, Mr. Browns, Mr. Browns artist. Nothing I love more than Oh, and when you when you stay Browns. there, you get like a print of, of by the artist. It's like a Xerox print. Well, not Xerox, but it's like a shitty print. Hmm. That's nice. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, we're gonna take a <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break and hear from the Hot Lake Hotel our sponsor, uh, and we'll be back with Daniel reading a little bit more from The Gardener, The Visionary, The Traveler, The Joker, and The Thief by Wolfmother. Okay, check this shit out. You've heard of hot takes, but have you heard of Hot Lake? It is a lake that is hot, and the Hot Lake Hotel is the best place to stay when you are at it. An artist makes bronze shit there and it has also previously been a hot dog stand, an adult superstore, a daycare facility, and a butthole factory. The history is nearly limitless. If you find yourself in Oregon this fall, make sure to stop by the Hot Lake Hotel and get your ass eaten by a millennial ghost. The Hot Lake Hotel is your own personal Shangri-La. All video art is technically steampunk. The wooden door creaked as John pushed it open and stepped into the cramped shop. Strange goods were stacked atop one another and crammed into shelves from floor to ceiling. The store smelled like dust, like dry earth. Books, magazines with aging brittle paper, old toys, superheroes and fantastic beasts rendered in plastic waged epic wars along the uppermost shelves. John was immediately overwhelmed by the quantity of things. Things he vaguely recognized from his own childhood and things he'd never seen before except maybe in old movies watched via cloud sink. Glassware painted with palm trees and women in grass skirts, a silver teapot with a bird on the spout, 
vinyl records and cardboard sleeves, large plastic bottles of Mountain Dew chrome, and something called a lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine. John closed the door behind him and made his way deeper into the clutter. The air was very still, but John could hear what sounded like a fan and muffled voices. The light was dim and yellow-hued. From the rear of the shop, there emanated a faint blue glow. John made his way towards it, and as he pushed past the cramped aisle between shelves, stepping around a rack of faded nylon jerseys emblazoned with the logos of nearly forgotten sports teams, he found the sales counter. A man in a faded plaid shirt hunched on a small stool, watching some movie on an antique LCD flat-screen television. The man barely looked up from the blue glow as John approached. On the bulky screen, some sort of spacecraft spun slowly against a backdrop of stars. The man was small and wiry. His shirt was tucked into crisp blue denim pants, and he wore a sweat-stained ball cap pulled down over his graying hair. His face bore the trace of time, creased and drawn, but still sat well on his bones. John cleared his throat. The man didn't acknowledge him, he ventured a timid, Hello? This is one of the greats, the man said. John glanced over to the film. The spacecraft still spun against the background of stars. Kubrick, one of the greats, so not without his faults. John nodded. I was hoping you could help me find something. I'm looking for, I don't know exactly, camping supplies? A tent? Right, right. Take some kind of greatness, the man said, wouldn't you say? Sorry, what? To imagine. To imagine another world, another people, another time, another space so completely. Other stars, even. The man kept his eyes glued to the film. He brought his hand up to his face, slightly pinching his chin between his thumb and the arc of his forefinger. I don't know if I could do it. He lifted his eyes to meet John's. You think you could do it? Imagine another world completely? So Hot Lake Hotel, thank you for <laughs> hooking us up so quickly today uh, on that on that wonderful advertisement, but. I want to go back to something that you were talking about earlier, which is this idea of belief and uh-huh. the structures and the systems that mm-hmm. cause us to kind of like hold certain things dear. Um, and I guess I just wanted to ask you because there's this, you know, there, there are people who have an interest in the paranormal or the mm-hmm. supernatural, um, but they might be extreme skeptics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I realize that maybe I haven't really talked to you about where on that spectrum your belief falls and mm-hmm. also related to you know, you've done art and performances and things like that that have to do with things like astral projection or Mm -hmm. remote viewing. And I'm curious how much of this is like you're sort of working with these things as tools or you're interested in hauntings, but you're kind of like, "Eh, I'm not going to see a fucking ghost. But Mm -hmm. um, would you say that you're skeptical? Are you somebody who, uh, who would like to encounter something but doesn't, hasn't yet or? I'd say I'd like to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. He's, smiling. He's really proud of himself right now. That's a uh, it's a poster we made like five years ago, but four years ago. But okay, so um, he's also wearing a fucking X Files t shirt. Um, it's thematic. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So where I mean, is it more of just like a, you're interested in these things, or is it sort of because you know some people go towards it to um, intentionally disprove it? 
Yeah, it's not. I I I am. I would. I'm a skeptic, but I also think that. But there is a part of me that does believe in a lot of this kind of thing, but maybe not in the like exactly how it's all often portrayed. Um, I mean, I think. I mean, part of like the hauntings project, and like our and like our you know work with uh, GWC and UFOs. Like that trip, a lot of a lot of this comes sort of comes out of like investigating those things as this sort of phenomena as metaphor, uh, but that does maybe that do maybe have some sort of manifestation in real space. So thinking about like the hauntings as as like the echo of trauma embedded into a space. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mean like these I, are things that like a, a human being of a certain uh, specific kind of sensitivity can pick up on. Sure. things whereas like somebody else might not and so right. that person might be sensitive to and i think that it's like i don't know i think it's like residuals residual energies and mm-hmm. i think i do believe that a place like places whether it's like human built architecture or or geologic sites can hold on to to energies of some kind um that's really sounds so vague, um, but, but no, it's like if you I think go like, to a battlefield of and part of it is like, like projection, right? It's like that projection of desire, yeah. Um, and like so, uh, a number of years ago, I was in Ireland and visited this uh, site, this site called the Hag of Barra. Do you mean a banshee? Is, um, it's a rock <laughs> <laughs> that is on the Barra Peninsula. That is. Like according to myth, is this is the petrified remains of this goddess that's like waiting for her lover to return out of the sea. Uh, but it's just like a rock, like an odd shaped rock on this grassy hill. There's like nothing around it. Mm-hmm. Um, you like to visit it. You like you know pull over to the side of the road and climb over a fence. Um, but people leave like offerings there, like money and beads and whatever food um but like this idea that like that stone because of sort of human projections of desires for it to be that thing it becomes that thing Mm -hmm. um and i think there's a little bit of that with like the hauntings like like that projection to like to want to have that experience to to like want to have to want to like touch something beyond what we know and that's just like i mean that's like the thing that drives religion and spirituality and like utopian desires, like that desire for something more. So, I mean, I do, I do believe in it to a certain extent, but I also, but I'm like, not sure if it's, is that thing or if it's this sort of other, I don't right. know. Maybe like, that there's something there, but it might not be the sort of automatic conclusion that right. one might come to that it's either like, Yes, this place is haunted by a literal ghost, or right. no, it is not. And right. only like this binary, only those two things can exist. But right. perhaps what you're proposing is that there can be something there, but it could be the result of myriad factors, including like an embedded like, trauma in a space or someone or just like collective human psychic energy wanting something yeah. to happen. Um, because, yeah, it seems that, I mean, and clearly if someone goes to 
a place, like you were saying earlier, who really wants to have an experience, that person is projecting a lot of things that will mm -hmm. make something like that probably much more likely. Right. I mean, I think when we went to Arizona with Mike and camped at the Walton abduction site, uh, I think we put a lot of energy out that was that something weird happened here and is going to happen again. So even small minor things became magnified. Like yeah. Tenfold. Very yeah. also being alone in the woods for like seven days. Yeah. That'll do it. Crazy, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I think that's an interesting way to think about uh, an interest in those. And also a, a thing that's sort of what I like about the work that you make is that instead of someone who has this kind of like, purely aesthetic or almost like offhanded interest in something and it's like isn't this funny or isn't this strange like I work with this stuff that's sort of weird and off the beaten path but doesn't immerse themselves enough or permit themselves to kind of uh, they keep a, they don't put their nose too close to the page basically you know they mm -hmm. want to be pretty distanced from it and it seems yeah. like you're happy to embed yourself and are open to the you know if the experience happens you're ready for the experience but it's also something that you're not um desperately seeking for like right. some kind of validation of what you're looking for. So you, yeah. maybe you're a little bit more of a barometer than like. A... Yeah. And I think a lot of it is about like attempting, like the attempt, right? Like mm -hmm. to, you know, like thinking about, thinking about like beacon and like this idea of sending a message to space. It doesn't really matter if it work, like if it actually works or not, mm -hmm. if, like if it act, actually leave the transmits beyond the atmosphere, it doesn't matter. It's just like that sort of, the attempt to do that or the, like the, um, this is like declaring your intention in life, right? Like, it's like, like, this is the thing that I want to project out there because, and it becomes important for that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, just that sort of intention projects maybe, uh, or like the astral projection. It's like, it, if it works, it great. If it doesn't work great, but it's about sort of like putting forth an earnest yeah. effort to, to get there. Well, weren't you in a show that you, said you were astral projecting to. yeah that was that show that jason Mussum put together yeah oh Adam, that was like everybody at, bring your stuff that you had a pizza delivered oh, to yeah what was uh it's a small small world at yeah uh, at family, family business, business. Yeah. The, and, right. uh, <laughs> what's, the, what's the other guy's name the guy from the new museum luigi no not luigi um <laughs> Come on, Jason made a video one time where he said that the lettuce in his salad is hundred. Massimiliano Gioni. <laughs> the lettuce in his salad was hundred dollar bills. Is what he said in the video. But, um, yeah, you were astral projecting to that, yeah. which is pretty funny. Yeah. So you, did you? You sat down in earnest and attempted to do that during the open. I really tried to. Yeah. Did you feel anything? No, I, no. It's relaxing though. Yeah. Yeah. What about remote viewing? What is remote viewing for somebody who isn't? Uh, isn't ahead, you know. Remote viewing is basically a astral projection, and it's like leaving your body into view another site, mm -hmm. right? I guess so. I've I always thought so. that astral projection was more of a you're trying to send a manifestation of, of yourself, yourself to yeah, something, yeah, yeah, whereas yeah, yeah. remote viewing it's is just more like, like observational, like yeah. you have a little, almost yeah. like the eye that comes up out of the submarine, right. you know, and yeah. looks around. Yeah. One of yeah. those types of things, but. Yeah. Like Sauron. Like the Eye of Sauron. Yes, that's everywhere. Yep. Did you see that movie, um, Hunt for the Wilder People? No. It's like a, Did I? I don't think so. I think it's it's a New Zealand movie. It has Sam Neill in it from like Jurassic yeah. Park and stuff. Yeah. But he's like an old man. It's pretty cool. And he, 
he's like this backwoods guy and he has a adopted son or like a foster son that comes to live with him and his wife and it's this kid um and the kid's kind of you know he doesn't have parents obviously he's a foster child but he's kind of like a a little bit of a bad kid, but not really bad. You know, he's just like troubled yeah. a little bit. But anyways, they like run away and are hiding or something from uh, the feds or whoever it is that's trying to come and get them for this reason, that reason. I don't want to spoil it. But there's one scene where they're like under this tree in the woods and they're like like with this little overhang and they're like hiding underneath it. And all of these cops like come up and are standing above them and are like looking around. And I was staring at it and I was like, what the fuck? And then the kid is like mouthing to Sam Neill. And Sam Neill's like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying. And the kid's like, this is just like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> when they're up above them, when the uh, guard a horse comes, but yeah, it's totally an aside. But you know, um, but I think the attempt also is like like the novel is an attempt, also like this, like all you, of these things. I mean, that like, you literally wrote a novel. I mean, I did, but it but it sort of began as this like attempt to See, embody yeah. something else that was like to embody being a science fiction writer. Did you feel like you were taking on did you because this is the first long form thing like that that you've written i mean you've written some shorter fictional ish pieces and stuff like that but did you feel like you were trying on other people's writing voices and did you Um, settle on your own i don't think i was trying on other people's writing voices i mean this is the first like novel length thing that i've written but i've been writing for a really long time um i think like what i I wasn't trying on other writing voices, but I was trying on this sort of role of being a quote unquote science fiction writer. Like, um, I'm not one, <laughs> right? Like sort of, I'm like, I don't know, man, you wrote a science fiction novel. But there's this sort of like idea of, like I embarked on the project sort of as, as an attempt to like, embody this that role of like the paid by the word pulp sci-fi mm-hmm. writer um and like take on this other sort of position that was very different than my usual practice um as sort of an, an experiment and to sort and to just like take on this other role yeah um it's kind yeah. of like a, it's a real deep artist is amateur though i mean this yeah. is like pretty it's a long yeah. con. <laughs> like the same game is to like if it's to be like. I'm curious what it feels like to be a well, sci-fi writer. So you write a novel. How many pages I know. is it? It's, I don't know. It's like 200 and something pages, but it's like 47,000 words. Um, <laughs> but that was like the goal was like to take on this other sort I've, of. I haven't even tweeted that many times. Yeah, and it's I, a lot. <laughs> um, but it is like this sort of. But I, I mean, it was the sort of a- adoption of another role. Like, am I? I yeah. don't know if I'm going to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I will. But are there people whose work? Maybe I didn't. Maybe when I asked earlier if you're trying on different people's voices was not what I was actually trying to ask. I think what I was trying to ask, um, and I should have articulated differently, is who are so somebody's listening right now and they're just like you know they have like a. Had like a, a slight interest in sci-fi, but don't really know where yeah. to start. Is there, because I mean, while this might be the first one that you've written, you've certainly consumed yeah. your fair share. Um, are there any like just great starting places for people who want to get into sci-fi? Because there's a lot of really bad sci-fi. There's a lot of really bad sci-fi, but I kind of even love the really bad sci-fi. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 
I sort of, I I've like had a long-standing interest in science fiction film, like since I was, you know, a, I don't know, grade school. Yeah. And <laughs> but I didn't really get deep into reading science fiction until maybe ten years ago. Yeah. Did you um, like pick up one and go? They made a book out of this. It, it was. This is another thing that relates to like to my dad. Is a big Philip K. Dick mm-hmm. fan, yeah. and uh, and I sort of came to it through through that, um, and so like Philip K. Dick is, I think, a big influence in a lot of not just this project, but sort of how I'm thinking about things lately. And and even though the, a lot of the writing is kind of terrible um, in terms of language and like writing as a craft. Uh, but it's like that idea. It's like idea driven. Um, yeah. Well, that's. I mean, I have. I love <clears throat> Philip K. Dick, and I also have a deep affinity for Stephen King. Yeah. And like, let's be honest, the vast majority of his output right. is fucking garbage. But there's something about the position of like yeah. producing and mass yes. at that volume like, in like genre yeah. writing is pretty amazing, and you're guaranteed to have some bangers in there. Yeah. And Philip K. Dick had his fair share of bangers. Yeah. Like. But that's yeah. I think that's a great. But I would story. say like, like a short story collection. I think would be good yeah. for somebody who's like brand new. Um, yeah. There is one that's called "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" Right? Like there's a, a that's collection. A that's a novel. Is that a full novel? Yeah, that's I the novel that, that Blade Runner story. was based on. Oh, I thought that was a short story. There's a short story. There's a collection um, that's Minority Report. That's and other what I'm stories. Yeah, yeah. Because that was a short story. That's. I feel like um, one of those collections is a fun place for yeah. somebody to start because you get to sort of like try on whether you like yeah. this for 10 yeah. like six to ten pages yeah. or something and then you can kind of be like eh, not really but yeah. I, I think they're pretty charming but story. i think like philip k dick <laughs> and and ursula Ur- <coughs> ursula Le Guin are like the sort of major ones have you met me. her she lives in no portland, i wish right does well, she live in portland no I'm yeah she of, does she does yeah. okay no, and I her haven't son is her. like a art person right yeah <laughs> theo theo runs up for theo Le Guin. Mm-hmm. Runs up for gallery. Yeah, Theo Le Guin. That's like a good, <laughs> Theo Le Guin runs I have up met Theo. for gallery. Yeah, it's a good word exercise. That's how you warm um, up. I feel like. Uh, did you ever read is it Alfred Bester? Uh, no. The stars, my destination. No. That's one that I feel like I've recommended to a few people, and I'm yeah. not like a super deep sci-fi head, but I, I certainly like it. But that was one that I thought was really fantastic. That, yeah. I think a lot of people get behind. Claire is in like three different sci-fi book clubs. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. She's very good at reading them. And she has, she's in different sci-fi book clubs that have different like levels of criticality. And that's not to be diminutive to any of them. It's just some are very pulpy, some are very serious. Um, Yeah. But I think, so, so in like this, this project and thinking about sort of like that idea of taking on that role, part of this so like is this i like i've been thinking a lot about how sort of like science fiction like here i'm like taking on this role of as a science fiction writer but i've also been thinking about how my other work sort of becomes its own kind of science fiction like how to make objects that are science fictional objects and and how to sort of make that like a concrete practice Mm -hmm. and and this is sort of i've been thinking about this in relationship to david robbins and this and like that idea of like positioning, repositioning your practice as another sort of discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in order to like reframe its history and context and the way that it can be articulated and and understood um and so like how how maybe can shift practice my practice into being like to being science fiction rather than art Mm -hmm. like yeah i mean that makes sense because i think a lot of your work too has a relationship to this sort of uh mythologized history of like the Mm -hmm. tinkerer yeah or like the like the amateur Amateur. experimenter at home and building these things and um yeah laying bare the means of production yeah like a lot of your work is like messy in only that it has like the wires are showing the other things it's the it's the opposite of the iphone yeah you know and it does this different thing i think that as long as you always make sure to keep in the back of your brain that like don't don't put goggles on anything right don't (laughs) i don't want any gears and nothing that resembles a dirigible yeah, I think you're talking about steampunk now. Mm-hmm. I'm saying don't. <laughs> Just whatever you do, please avoid that. Because um, there's some... Don't worry, I'm not going to become a Burning Man artist. Okay, right. cool. I'm just saying, you can get like dangerously close. I mean, some yeah. people, no, I know, some people but do it's it really like, well. Like, when like this is Kelly like a difference between it, like... It a, there's funny. like the difference between aestheticizing like this, just simply the aesthetics of science fiction yeah. versus versus like ideological, conceptual, embedded embeddedness within a way of thinking that is about like thinking about potentialities and um potentialities and like futurities and like possibility Mm -hmm. that i think is very i mean i think those are very different things like any story you can take any story and like yeah slap some weird gears on it and lasers and call it science fiction or put it in space Mm -hmm. right like but that doesn't necessarily embody the same sort of like examination of of radical new possible possibilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, does I that th- make sense? Yes, yes, it does, and it's and it's making me think about the fact that much like the sculptor glues <laughs> a mass-produced object to another object, the steampunk <laughs> glues, glues a gear. <laughs> To literally any object that already works. And, and then the like spray paints and bronze. Yeah, and the gear doesn't do anything. I've talked about this on the podcast before, but did you watch <laughs> Steampunk, the TV show? No. Come on, dude. you got to watch it. It's on, it maybe isn't on Netflix anymore, but there was only one season. And it's basically Top Chef, but for Turning making things into shit s- Steampunk. Oh, God. That sounds like a nightmare. It is. And you should, <laughs> you should watch it. It's really great. Um, well, uh. I think we're at time here. So I want to say thank you, Daniel, for taking some time out of your day to come by and talk about your work, talk about ghosts. I'm really glad we ended on steampunk. I feel like that's a nice arc. Um, (laughs) And uh, for anybody out there who's listening. It's a terrible taste um, to leave in people's mouth. I'm sure. Can they get the, can they order the book off of Small Edition? I think so. Okay. So go to Small Editions. I think you can order it from Small Editions. Or email Um, Karina at Small Editions. Or email Karina. I'm sure you can get a copy. Um, I think it's like $18. Okay. That's a good price. I'll put a link to Daniel's. It looks really beautiful. Karina did an amazing job. Stop interrupting me. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put a link to Daniel's work, obviously, and things like that on the blog post that this comes up on. Um, But thank you very much. And, uh, We're going to exit here with Daniel reading one more excerpt from The Gardener, The Visionary, and The Traveler. Uh, Thank you all. We'll see you next week. Thanks.
Everything is the same everywhere. Red dirt, red rocks, red dust drifting across a flat red plain. Away in the distance, jagged red mountains jut over the horizon. They never seem to get any closer. Red like rust. Iron oxide is swirling around the stones, kicking up behind the wheels of Beta Rover, catching the wind. Number four is perched in the rover's seat. His white pressure suit is coated with a film of red dust. He's leaving a heavy wake behind him, a cloud that could be followed back to the encampment. Number four is driving in a nearly straight line. He can barely see through the dust that coats his clear faceplate. He's steering by a combination of the scant visual reference he can gather through the red film and data readouts appearing on the interior of his faceplate. A small gridded map pinpointing his location by satellite positioning, numbers gauging his altitude, external temperature, internal temperature, oxygen supply levels, external wind direction and speed, and a careful plotting of a search radius he has programmed into the system. Still, though, he's searching blind. He knows where number three isn't. He isn't at the encampment, and he isn't at any of the locations Beta Rover has visited on its own automated search grid. Or at least number three wasn't at those locations. Things change. Things change quickly sometimes. There's little hope, no hope really, if number four is honest with himself, of finding number three alive. But still, number four can't abide leaving him out here in all this red nothing to be buried in dust for eternity, alone, with no one to bid him bon voyage. Number one is back at the encampment, in eco-compartment A. Her figure, hunched over the broad white work table, is fractured and broken through the spiderweb cracks of the camera lens. There's no ignoring the fact that we have a locked perspective, that we can't really be down there alongside the settlers as they go about their duties. We have fixed points of view, alternated between by someone somewhere managing a control board, or perhaps by a computer algorithm. Number one, from what we can see, looks tired. Of course she looks tired. She's living 140 million miles on average from her place of birth, her family, her friends. 140 million miles, give or take 100 million miles, from the town she grew up in, from the beach she and her dad frequented on summer days eating lunch on the bluffs over the Pacific, back when there were bluffs over the Pacific that you could eat at if you had the right kind of connections. From the private university she attended, where she drank too much and for a while snuck away from sorority functions to go see loud mechanistic performers growling in sweaty basements. 140 million miles from everything she knew and loved, from everything she chose to walk away from to be hurled across space and work all day every day to build something that just might develop over time into a shred of hope for building a new home for humanity. (laughs) 